This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Welcome to the In Focus podcast. My name is Jayan Shriram and I'm your host for today. In this episode, we discuss the recent G7 summit, the messages and the larger themes that emerged, and the key takeaways for India. I'm joined by the Hindu's National and Diplomatic Affairs Editor, Suhasini Haider, and the Hindu's China correspondent, Anand Krishnan, to discuss. So, Asini and Anand, thank you both for joining the podcast today. Happy to have you here as all. Thank you, uh, Jayanth. And it's interesting how much uh, traction the G7 seems to be getting this year. Right. Um, so, Anand, I think uh, you can take the first question on that. Let's just start, you know, for the benefit of our listeners. Uh, what are the main takeaways from the G7 summit this year and, um, you know, also the joint statement that was put out? Sure. Um, I think, Jayanth, uh, as with everything in 2021, I think any multilateral summit is going to have a lot of attention on vaccines. Uh, so I would put their announcement of uh, 1 billion doses uh, over the next year is one of the big takeaways that obviously the G7 countries are flagging. Uh, I would say two other issues that caught my eye. Uh, one is the announcement of this infrastructure project that they plan to work together on that they're calling B3W or Build Back Better World, kind of a counter to the Belt and Road Initiative of China's. Um, And I think the way that China figured in the joint statement, in the communique, was quite striking to me, uh, which was the third big takeaway for me. So I would say vaccines, infrastructure, and China. But I think it is also interesting to keep in mind that I think there's some gap between their ambitions on all three issues and actually what they have promised in concrete terms so far. If you just take vaccines as an example as well, a billion doses in the next year might seem like a lot, but actually it isn't. If you look at the communique, what they are exactly are planning to do is to commit to share 870 million doses over the next year. Most of it, most of it will be channeled through the WHO-linked COVAX facility. Uh, but the reaction from the WHO was fairly measured in the sense that If you look at their ambition of having 70% of the world vaccinated uh, by the next G7 summit, uh, the WHO pointed out they need 11 billion doses. So 870 million isn't going to get you there. It is obviously welcome, but it is way short of what the world needs. Uh, And I think that that's one thing to keep in mind with that announcement. Similarly, we'll talk about this more in terms of the infrastructure project as well. I think that there wasn't any agreement in coming up with a number. So there is a lot of ambition in terms of how they want to work together on global infrastructure projects uh, in developing countries. But again, they haven't been able to flesh it out in terms of financial commitments. Uh, So I think it's going to be a a huge challenge for them to actually put this in place if it's going to be a credible counterweight to China. Similarly with China as well, the statement does mention concerns on issues like Xinjiang and Hong Kong. But We'll talk about this as well. Uh, is, is, is everybody in Europe on the same page on China, given their trade com- commitments to China, especially if you look at Germany, for example? I think the jury is out. So it's going to be interesting to see how on all three issues, how they actually translate these ambitious pronouncements into concrete outcomes. 
Right, yeah. And so, Ashton, just before we move on, uh, if I could just also bring you in on this question. Um, what were your takeaways from the G7 summit and also just the importance of the G7 summit at this time? In Right. Well, firstly, it was an important uh, summit simply because this is the first time all these leaders are really getting together face to face since the COVID pandemic. And it was obvious from the Bonhomie you saw there on the beaches of Cornwall, of Carbis Bay, uh, leaders interacting with each other. Um, and and being seen on that multilateral platform. Uh, the second part, of course, is that this is uh, the first G summit, uh, G7 summit since Mr. Biden came to power. And Mr. Biden was very clearly putting his imprint all over it. In fact, if you uh, looked at the, the actual motto, the slogan of this G7 summit, the UK made it Build Back Better. But remember, Build Back Better is actually uh, a slogan that Mr. Biden used in his campaign, and then he used it for his own jobs and uh, um, uh, economy programs post-COVID. Uh, so that was uh, the second thing, that America wanted to signal that it's back. Uh, the third importance, of course, Anant has spoken about, and that is the way the G7 countries seem to have built a consensus about taking on the challenge of China. And we saw no less than four specific references to China in that statement on Xinjiang, on Hong Kong, as well as the East China Sea, South China Sea, as well as um, uh, economic coercion uh, allegations of, uh, as well as the COVID origins. Uh, so you you can you can see that that was obviously a, a major theme. Uh, now India, it was a guest at this uh, at, at this particular right. uh, G7, um, and India has been a guest before since 2003. India's uh, Prime Minister has been invited several times to be a part of the G7 or G8 as it was earlier. Um, why this time is different is because this comes after a proposal last year to actually turn the G7 or to extend the G7 into something called the D10, uh, 10 democratic countries. Uh, and uh, the, the original plan was for the US to have hosted that, uh, which didn't work. So Prime Minister Modi's invitation here was very much in continuation of that plan that Western leaders, and of course I should add Japanese prime ministers, was in the G7, um, but the G7 club or the G7 group had very much hoped to extend it into this idea of it. So when Prime Minister Modi spoke at the G7 this time, of course he spoke about recovering from the pandemic, uh, he, and he spoke about climate change, which is, of course, an important issue this year uh, for the UK, because the UK will later this year in November host uh, the COP26 summit. And uh, it is quite possible that Prime Minister Modi, who didn't actually attend the G7 summit in person, he had to attend it virtually because of dealing with the pandemic, might in fact then ho uh, then travel to the UK if, if uh, you know, restrictions permit uh, for the COP26 summit. So uh, PM Modi spoke about these two areas, but very specifically, and I think this is what has really taken the headlines for the last couple of days. And let me tell you, it's not often that G7 headlines uh, take over uh, newspapers and televisions in the same way, but uh, was because of uh, his appearance at the Open Societies, Open Economies session. Now, this was an outreach session. It was meant for the guests at the G7. So that was India, South Africa, South Korea, uh, as well as Australia. And um, there may have been a plan earlier for a, a, even a quad summit to be held on the sidelines for this because both Japan and Australia were invited. Um, but this particular session saw, uh, you know, Prime Minister Modi talking about the problems with authoritarianism. Uh, he spoke about the need uh, to deal with human rights violations, with 
um, uh, uh, with in disinformation and with propaganda, as well as the uh, uh, you know the the joint communique they all signed on to that spoke about uh, uh, how terrible internet shutdowns were. Uh, now many have uh, raised an eyebrow at uh, this being a key part of India's commitment, simply because for the last few years, these are the issues that India has been criticized about, uh, particularly on internet shutdowns. For example, it's estimated that last year, India had the highest number of internet shutdowns. In fact, my one estimate, it was 100 and, uh, 109 out of 150, I think, internet shutdowns around the world happened in India. But from what we understand, India was keen to make it clear it is not defensive on these issues that it has faced criticism about, um, but that it would uh, it would maybe chart an independent path and ensure that the language was not critical of anything that India considers is necessary or the government considers is necessary for its own interests. So, for example, what we understand is that India pushed very hard that the language on Internet shutdowns was diluted. Earlier, it spoke about states that suppress information or the flow of information. Instead, the final um, uh, summit document, the communique for, for, from the outreach, spoke about the criticism of politically motivated Internet freedoms. So what this basically means is um, that that when a state needs to cut down on, uh, uh, sorry, politically motivated internet shutdown. So what it means is when a state needs to shut down the internet or the flow of information in order to deal with a law and order situation or prevent an attack, then that's not included in this. That's seen as a law and order or a national security uh, issue. Now, it does seem very interesting that India made such a strong presence felt on this particular issue. Of course, uh, there were other places where Prime Minister Modi spoke about uh, the idea of one world, one health as a as a slogan, um, so that the idea that vaccines must be made available to all. Uh, the fact that India and South African leaders were both present helped push for the TRIPS waiver at the World Trade Organization, you know, the, the waiver of intellectual property rights over vaccines, um, which they are trying to get widespread support over. And it does seem, according to officials, that many in the G7 were, uh, were were actually coming on board Australia, for example, that seemed to have been uh, blocking the uh, WTO proposal, now seems to be backing it quite clearly. Uh, so we, uh, we, we saw India also use this platform to try and push its own ideas. Uh, the interesting part, and I'll, I'll stop over there, was really on China, because when we see this communique, which has so many uh, references to Chinese aggression. We asked uh, officials of the MEA whether Chinese aggression had actually come up in the outreach meetings with where Prime Minister Modi was present. And officials essentially said that these uh, particular issues, you know, climate change, pandemic, open societies, had not actually raised uh, the issue of China. Uh, so obviously, India is staying away from that part of the communique, as well as, of course, um, the criticism of Russia and cyber attacks in uh, that was also present in the communique. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, Asti, yeah, thanks. That was a I think that was a really detailed, uh, you know, sort of roundup of what was India's involvement in this G7 summit. And, you know, from that perspective, um, Anand, if I can sort of broaden it out again. Um, so, as you mentioned earlier, that this is the first G7 summit with uh, as with, with Joe Biden as president of the U.S. Right. So, um, you know, how has his outreach to um, Europe in particular uh, been different uh, from Trump? 
um, you know, just on the face of it, what can we say so far based on this summit and what's come before? No, I think uh, Suhasani put it really well uh, when she said that this weekend summit really had Biden's imprint, I think, in pretty much every aspect of it, right from the Build Back Better reference. And you could almost see the palpable sense of relief on the faces of, uh, for instance, France's President Emmanuel Macron uh, and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson as well. Uh, and they were pretty blunt about it as well. They obviously didn't talk about Trump, who uh, had a very, very different approach to Europe, uh, and uh, which is well documented. Uh, you had, it's, but it's quite unusual in the world of diplomacy when you actually have a French leader saying that uh, Trump's successor was uh, really a breath of fresh air. And he said, quote, it's great to have a U.S. president who's part of the club and very willing to cooperate, right. uh, is what he said. Um, and the message that uh, you heard from several uh, European leaders was was the U.S. is back. And I think it's pretty clear, not just with Europe, but even in the way the Biden administration has approached relations with partners, including India, in Asia uh, and allies, that it sees that it needs to have as wide a front as possible to deal with its number one focus, which is China. Uh, now, the feeling was that uh, Trump, was had a very different approach where he dealt with China bilaterally, even when focusing very, uh, some would say, in a narrow way on U.S. interests in their bilateral relationships in Europe, in Asia as well, which some in Washington felt is counterproductive in the way they deal with China, which is such a difficult issue for them. Uh, so it's clearly a very, very, very different approach. Uh, and he feels that the best way to do that is to try and get as much unity as he can with Europe. It's going to be difficult because each country obviously has its own interests vis-a-vis China as well. Uh, but make no mistake, China is very much on the agenda. You saw in Monday's NATO summit as well, which Biden went to after the G7 in Cornwall, uh, where uh, the NATO leaders had a very, very direct reference to Beijing saying China presents systemic challenges, which is quite strong language. Uh, and that its ambitions and assertive behavior uh, posed serious challenges to the rules-based order. Uh, So it's very clear that China is his number one focus, and he believes that the best way to address that is to try and bring everyone along. I think that's probably the the key difference with how President Trump approached it. Yeah, um, Anand, uh, just sort of staying with you for for the next question as well, um, how has China reacted to the summit and the statement? No surprise, of course, that uh, Suhasini said there were, I think, four references to China uh, and especially the references to Hong Kong and Xinjiang, which are usually a red drag for Beijing. I think it brought out quite a sharp statement. Uh, This being a holiday weekend in China, you have the Chinese embassy in London coming out with a statement first, uh, where it kind of hit out at the G7 as a small club and it says that the quote the days when global decisions were dictated by a small group are long gone uh, they accuse the G7 of slandering China and it's quite interesting that uh, as Suhasini said it's quite unusual for a G7 summit to get headlines in India all over the world and in China too uh, where on Chinese social media there's been a bit of outpouring over the weekend on this group of countries in their view ganging up to contain China. Uh, images have been going around on Chinese social media, which kind of compare the G7 to the eight-country alliance at the early 20th century that, of course, uh, invaded China after the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, so those images have been going around uh, in the Chinese media, kind of 
pointing to the message saying that, you know, China suffered this century of humiliation at the, at the hands of Western powers 100 years ago. And now they're trying to do the same thing, which is why China should uh, unite and come together. And of course, all of this happening just two weeks before the Communist Party's 100-year anniversary on July 1, which so kind of made for a very heady mix on Chinese media, which has been sort of uh, quite lapping up the G7 coverage, uh, linking into China's past and sort of fomenting a very strong nationalist sentiment in China against the U.S. in particular uh, and the G7 more broadly as well. Right. No, it, it is making headlines all over the world. And Swasni, um, aside from China, um, how will India look at uh, the G7 bracketing Russia also as a threat? I mean, along with China as well. Well, you know, Jant, as I said, India uh, obviously diplomatically stayed away from the language about China and about Russia and clearly on Russia, particularly uh, they would not have joined in as they haven't on the West's uh, statements when it has come to uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine and Crimea as well. Um, I think what we're looking at is also a deep polarization that has come through in the G7, with the G7 making it clear that these are their targets. Essentially, what they're saying is that it will be, um, you know, the West plus Japan versus the rest, uh, or at least Russia and China, that represent a large part of the rest of the world. Uh, India is going to just have to work that tightrope much, much more if that's what it wants to do. Because remember, later this year, India will continue its engagement with Russia and China. There are RIC summits. There's a BRICS summit that Prime Minister Modi is expected to chair, whether it's virtual or in person. It will involve both President Xi Jinping and uh, President uh, Putin. So um, India has not, you know, India is not moving out of those constellations either at present. And I think this kind of uh, uh, G7 communique that names, uh, targets, and, uh, uh, you know, comes after these, uh, on these issues, um, talks about Russia and China very specifically is going to make it that much more difficult. Uh, remember, at the end of the day, India is not a member of the G7. Uh, and it's always been seen as a slightly elitist club because it's founded on the basis that these are the, the world's richest uh, countries or the world's most developed countries. Now, there are many right. contradictions in that. When it started in 1975, that may have been the picture. But today, certainly, um, countries like Italy are not part of, uh, you know, the world's most developed or the world's richest. And how do you leave out India and China, whose economies represent such a large part of the global economy, uh, from a grouping like this. Um, and thirdly, when it comes to the European Union, it is now a unit. Uh, it has been since the year 2000, uh, a common, has had a common currency. Uh, so the idea that you have Britain, Germany, France, Italy as separate entities at this grouping also seems to be a little, uh, contradictory to, uh, the, the, uh, the other multilateral, um, uh, combinations, if you like. So there is a question of where the G7 itself is headed. It's it's interesting to see these particular leaders come together on some nice beach or uh, as we see them around the world. But at the end, uh, it is seen as a very elitist club. And India is certainly not looking, when it's looking to demo, democratize multilateral forum, it would rather not be seen necessarily as part of, of that kind of a club. Right. And Anna, just to sort of... Uh... I bring back one point that you might have mentioned earlier as well. Um, what is the plan that sort of emerged to counter the Belt and Road Initiative? I mean, build back better is a kind of a, you know, a phrase that's used a lot. But was there any kind of specifics? 
Well, that was the announcement. Uh, they call it the Build Back Better World Partnership or the B3W Partnership, their response to the BRI, of course. But I think it was a bit short on details. I think the biggest thing that struck me and would strike a lot of people is that is there is no declared financial commitment for this. Going through the communique as well as a fact sheet that was put out, slightly short on details. Uh, it says that they will uh, collectively catalyze hundreds of billions of dollars uh, for infrastructure investment for low and middle income countries in coming years. There's no timetable. There's no amount. It does sort of kind of somewhat vaguely put out the uh, the guiding sort of principles of this B3W. It says it would be values driven, uh, which means infrastructure would be transparent and sustainable. It says that it would focus on good governments and good governance and strong standards. It would be climate friendly. Uh, and of course, all of this is kind of reading between the lines not just reaffirming the values of how they plan to do infrastructure, but a subtle dig at China and the BRI, which many of these countries have accused of not prioritizing these exact same issues. Now, thing, two things come up because of this, which is that one thing that comes to mind when you speak to many countries, including South Asia or Southeast Asia, why they turn to Chinese financing, oftentimes when they look to foreign countries for infrastructure or financing support, they don't want to be told what to do. and They don't want to be told or spoken down to saying this is uh, how you should do it. And I think that this is something that uh, the G7 will find when they reach out to these countries. Uh, I think ultimately they're going to have to take out at least a few things from China's playbook. The reason why Chinese financing has been welcomed uh, is because often it isn't with those strings attached, even if it does lead to some criticism. Um, and competing with China's wallet is going to be another big question mark, especially when a lot of these countries right now are so preoccupied with their own domestic issues. And there's very little domestic appetite in many of these countries uh, for them to actually splurge on uh, overseas financing. So I think the question marks are really there. Uh, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of ambition in, in the statement of what this partnership is going to do, but we have to wait and see if they can really flesh it out in a way that's going to be credible. Right, yeah, and so Ashni, let's just end on that note. Uh, will this uh, Build Back Better World Partnership actually work and is, is Europe on the same page? Well, you know, it's all about walking the talk. At the end of the day, as, as Anand's pointing out, China has a head start and now it is a, a nearly eight-year-old head start uh, with its Belt and Road Initiative. Is, uh, is, is the G7 or are the G7 countries really ready to uh, take on that kind of investment that China has already done, particularly at a time uh, when nobody's economies are flourishing? That remains one question. Uh, the second is if you are going to, uh, in, you know, make it a kind of brink, uh, you know, it becomes a, uh, an issue of brinkmanship where it's the, U, uh, the US plus or the G7 plus plan versus the Chinese BRI, then countries who have already tied up with the BRI, are they going to be made to choose? Now, this is where Europe does come in a little bit because many European countries are already dealing with China. And of course, that has caused its own problems within the European Union. Um, so that's going to be the second big concern. Uh, and I, I think the third is really the throughput because eventually what is uh, a counter plan to China's Belt and Road Initiative really going to look like? Is it going to be actual projects? In which case, what will you do? Will uh, will railroads be that have been laid down by China not be used and there'll be new railroads put down or new expressways put down? Um, and, and I mean that quite seriously. Are they going to 
be able to combine with some of these projects uh, in in countries these are all very very real questions when uh, a competition like this goes down to the ground uh, we saw it earlier the us announced something called the blue dot network it didn't actually provide a real alternative it essentially became a rating agency for infrastructure projects and certainly we didn't see much of a change to uh, china's belt and road uh, there is obviously the the great uh, hope uh, amongst the many of these countries that china's belt and road is going to prove so economically unviable that perhaps it 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 itself might flounder but i think uh, these are all real concerns uh, jayant about how any counter to the belt and road initiative can take off at this juncture post covid and particularly given that the belt and road initiative idea has at least been around all right we'll wrap up this episode here then uh, thank you both for joining us once again and we'll see you again in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon